And so we uh, launched our series last week, uh, Your Story Matters. And I told uh, Krista and Michelle, I said, you know what would be cool is to have you two girls share your story. And so, uh, are they not beautiful? I mean, just beautiful people, physically, mentally, emotionally, almost psychologically, but spiritually. I mean, I love these girls. Hey, y'all come and share your story. I think our people need to hear from y'all this morning. Give it up again, Michelle and Krista. Good morning again. <laughs> it's been a long time. So again, this is my, uh, my sister Michelle and I. So we're going to share a little bit about our stories. Now, like we said, we are two out of six kids and all six of us, if you were to get all six of us on stage, we range from 29 to 13 in age, and we all have very different perspectives of our growing up, and we have very different stories within our story, if you will. So Michelle's going to kick it off first as number four, and she's going to let you know about her perspective. Hello again, everyone. So as Krista mentioned, we're from a huge family, and family means so much to me. Not only do we have six of us kids um, directly, we also have, you know, 22 aunts and uncles, 25 cousins, and so forth. I'm sure some of you kind of can relate in that as well. Um, so family means a lot. Um, growing up, I kind of, I'm one who likes to think back on the memories and the childhoods, and it was fun growing up with my siblings. Um, but to go even deeper, or further back, I guess, um, at the age of three, I started gymnastics, and gymnastics has been like a key part in my life. We all kind of had our own little sports or instruments, things that we did there. Um, but gymnastics, I guess, you know, they saw a talent. I was young. I don't remember that far back. But um, so I continued doing gymnastics until um, recently. But also during my younger years, I accepted Christ, but I knew that I wanted to grow more. Because I remember, you know, saying that prayer and um, praying with people in first grade, but I knew that I obviously did didn't know everything, and obviously I still don't know. But um, so again, I continued gymnastics. I was going to school. Well, in fourth grade, I decided to be, or I guess my parents decided for to homeschool me. Krista and my oldest brother, Stephen, were already homeschooled at the time, just like district-wise. And so I was homeschooled with the rest of my siblings as well. Well, during that time, I continued gymnastics, and I started, um, we had this homeschool group at our gym, and we practiced seven hours a day. We did a three-hour practice in the morning. We did our homeschool and lunch, and then we did another four-hour practice. So I was really busy. I kind of found that um, my search for Christ and my walk with him was kind of at a plateau. I didn't really see that then, but looking back now, I can see that because I was really busy and I like to stay busy. But again, I saw that I was, um, or I was missing something at that time. Well, in middle school, um, we started this elite program. I know gymnastics is kind of foreign to a lot of people, but um, the junior Olympic level, like club, goes up to level 10, and then you can stay level 10 until you go to college if you go to college. But above that is the elite level, and that's like kind of what you see on TV. But um, in middle school, I decided since I was training that hard, my coaches thought that I could do it, and my parents thought that I could do it too. And so I became an elite gymnast, nowhere near, you know, the high of that, but I was in that level. Um, but that was never really my dream. Everybody is like, well, did you ever want to go to the Olympics? Like, you know, my students, because I'm a teacher now, they're like, why didn't you go? And I'm like, it's a long story, but that, you know, that was just never my dream. My dream was always to get that college scholarship. Well, again, that year was probably one of the hardest years because I was in middle school. I was working out all these hours for something that I didn't really want to do, but I felt this constant pressure from my coaches, 
my parents in a way. And I looked up to these people so much. They were like mentors to me. And I'm very much a people pleaser. And so that was not very good because I felt like I was letting them down. I felt this shame and guilt, like I mentioned. So it was really hard. So they were like, well, just at least stick through this year. So I did, I competed at those levels. And then I was like, okay, I did what I said I would do. I stuck it out. I decided, you know, through a lot of prayer, because again, there were people pressuring me, you need to stay this. You're an elite gymnast. You don't need to back down from that because what if, what if, what if? Well, again, through a lot of prayer, I decided to go back down to the Junior Olympic level and go to Providence Christian Academy in Lilburn. So no longer was homeschooled anymore. My brothers were already attending Providence. And so um, I was already two weeks into school. That's how long this decision and prayer um, um, took for me. So not only was I going through all of that, but another key thing that happened in our family, our big, lovely family that attended church every week, every Sunday, every Wednesday, our parents got divorced that year. So that was really hard for me. I am not one to open up about things, as Kristen is. But, um, so it was really hard. I, I kept it in. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do gymnastics. Gymnastics, like, kept busy. So that's kind of where the busyness kind of feeded that for me. But I knew that obviously that wasn't enough because I was still feeling all this pressure inside. And, like, I can't fix this. I wanted to. Again, tried to please people, cure things, can't control that. So that was really hard for me. And so that year, again, kind of middle school, going into high school, I had to turn to God. And that year was so crucial for me. Like, I grew so much because there's no way that I would be able to get through all of that, especially without opening up to people um, without God. So going to Providence, again, that was one of the best decisions. I kind of had to, again, look to God instead of looking to the people around me who were causing this pressure. And I grew so much spiritually there through our chapel, through our Bible classes. My high school um, senior year, we did systematic theology, and I just I feel like that was like the key point, turning point in my spiritual walk. And so I praise God for that and look back at like, what if I did give in to that, you know, pressure that was um, being put on me? And so I was thankful. Well, again, that gave me a firm foundation. I went to Iowa State as a gymnast. I was able to, it was really hard for me. I was homesick. I was, again, a really hard time. Had to, I was like, okay, God's going to get me through, even though I couldn't really see it then because I was so homesick. But he did. I was able to get involved in FCA and different leadership and kind of um, be a witness on my team, which was not easy, but God worked through me there too. And so coming back here, kind of shortening things up, um, it was always my dream to go back and teach at Providence. Um, becoming a teacher was also another kind of situation that was hard for me because they're like, don't go to teaching. It's really hard now. You know, there's all these problems and people are talking about it. Well, I felt that that was what God was calling me to do and that was what my passion was. So I came back, I stuck with that and I am now teaching my dream job at Providence and I am just like so happy now and I can't believe that, or I can believe actually that thinking back at that one point where everybody was pressuring me, like, no, you need to do elite gymnastics. You need to stay homeschooled. Like, I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure God would have had great plans that way too. But seeing where I am now and seeing how God has brought me through that and he has shown me so much joy through these things because he's put coaches and mentors and other teachers that I'm teaching with now that like just makes me so happy. And I'm not saying by any means that my life is perfect and that I don't have troubles because I still am dealing with that divorce and I'm still dealing with the people-pleasing aspect of my life that I'm trying to get over. Yes, but... Uh, Amen. <laughs> But, um, but I just like encourage you because God has encouraged me to 
keep looking to him during those trials, and it's a lot easier said than done, but seeing how, like, don't give in to that pressure, especially if it's, like, earthly things. Make sure that you're following God because, and I'm preaching to myself here, um, but as we go on in life, because, again, he has plans for us, and he will definitely show you that joy that he has for you. Michelle Sheely. Y'all, look her up on YouTube. Her gymnastics is on there. She's going to hate me for saying that, but it's amazing. Look her up. So, yeah, okay. So, um, so my story, my perspective is a little bit different. Um, I was, like I said, we're five and a half years apart. So I was older when all this stuff in our family was happening. So I have a little bit different perspective. Um, but one thing I really want to share, and this really came to me this week, I want to share before I even start sharing my story is I want to share a scripture that ever since Tim asked us to speak, the Lord has been telling me, hey, hey, hey. So I finally looked it up after like a week. I was like, okay, I know that scripture, but he's like, look at it anyway. So I looked at it and the scripture, this is actually only part of the verse, but it's Romans 2, 4. It says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And I had known that verse, but when I went back and looked at it, and then I looked at the whole chapter 2, that verse about kindness is smack dab in the middle of a whole chapter about the vanity and pointlessness of following the law without grace. And that's my story. Um, Michelle and I were uh, brought up in a home where um, Tim likes to talk about our marinades. And our marinade was Church of God, Assembly of God, um, which is a great thing. It's a great, it's a great denomination, if you will. Um, but in my experience with it, there was a lot of legalism there. There was a lot of rules. There was a lot of do this, don't do this. And um, I'm very, very thankful that my family, particularly my dad, encouraged us from a very young age to read scripture, read scripture, read scripture. Um, so, at age seven, on a Sunday morning at church, I really felt like I understood that I was a sinner and that the only thing that was going to uh, take care of that was Jesus Christ. That was it. So at that point, um, I believed that I was really saved, that God saved my soul. But there was a lot that was about to come, and there was a lot of transformation that had to take place in my heart. Um, like I said, it was a, it was a, legalistic, a legalistic environment. Um, but that was also in our family, not just in our church. And one thing that I really, really struggled with um, that my dad said all the time, he would say, grace to you. And he would say that meeting people in a restaurant, he would say that to anybody, which is a wonderful thing to say. But I struggled because I heard him say that but I didn't understand what that meant because I didn't always see that demonstrated. Um, as the firstborn, I wanted to do everything right. I was the perfection. I still, okay, I still am the perfectionist. Amen. Yeah, thank you. So I, <laughs> I got a witness. So um, I'm still the perfectionist. I wanted to do everything right, and I never felt like I could quite live up to the rules and the obligations. And so I heard this phrase, grace to you, but I didn't understand what grace meant. I knew Jesus had died for me, but the concept of grace, which is like the gospel, the whole point of the gospel, I didn't understand it. Um, so I spent most of my teenage and college years uh, afraid. I was afraid of failure. 
I was afraid of being alone. Um, I had a lot of nightmares about everything. I would have nightmares about being crucified. I would have nightmares about weird, random things happening to me. I had a lot of fear. And I was also very confused because I would see in our church and in our family these things said and these things read in scripture, but I didn't see how they were demonstrated. I didn't see an environment that supported those things, and it was very confusing to me. I did not understand grace. Um, I had a hard time reading scripture because I felt like it had always been through a lens that I didn't understand. So um, I went to college. When our parents got divorced, my mom called me the night before my first day of classes, my sophomore year of college, and said that they were separating. And so I started my sophomore year. A year later, they were officially divorced. And I was, I carried all that, through living through the turmoil at home, I carried that into this divorce process, and I carried my confusion. So in all of that, um, I was dating a guy, and I thought he was the one. I thought we were made for each other. Um, so we started dating. Well, <laughs> I also had a best friend. And my best friend's name was Danny Joyner. And we were just friends. Really, we were just friends. But during college, um, my boyfriend broke up with me. And Danny approached me. <laughs> and he said, you know, I think I like you as more than a friend. And I was like, OK. So let's try that. So we tried dating. <laughs> and I, he was, I mean, he was just pure of heart. He just, he was ready to, to love me and accept me. And I remember um, going over to hang out with him at his house with his family. And I was like, these people are weird. They love each other. They talk. And I don't understand it. And they're nice. And I was like, Danny's mom teases his dad and he doesn't get mad about it. And there, there's a relationship. They love each other and they extend grace. I was like, maybe that's what grace looks like. But I didn't trust it. I didn't trust that because it, it was, in my mind, in my story, it was contrary to what I had known. And I didn't trust it and I didn't get it. And I was afraid and I thought, no, we're just friends. I can't do this. I'm going to break up with you. So I broke up with him. Got back together with my other boyfriend, which made me look fantastic. And so we dated again. And then the next summer, <laughs> um, we broke up and Danny asked me out again for the second time. I don't know. He's a glutton for punishment. But he asked me out again. And we went through the summer and I broke up with him again because I was afraid and I was confused and I didn't know what to do. But I have to share a story about a moment that was so pivotal for me. I, I, like I said, I watched their family, and I saw them being all lovey-dovey and nice and stuff. And, but I remember it was a time when Danny and I were broken up, but we, were all, we all went to the same church. So we were back at church, and they were hosting this big teen talent. You may know what that's about, but it's a big music thing for, for kids and stuff and talent. And um, I had volunteered to help out. So I was standing at the back doors, and it was my job to just hold the door open. That was my job. So I'm standing there, I'm holding the door open, and I see Danny's parents coming toward me. And Danny wasn't with them, but he, they're coming toward me. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I have to see these people. They're going to think I'm a horrible person. I've dumped their son twice. This is bad. And they walk up to me, and Steve, Danny's dad, Steve says, hello, young lady. How are you? And I was like, wow. 
he called me young lady, and I have not acted like a young lady. I've been horrible to his son. I've broken his heart, but he called me young lady, and he extended kindness to me. I was like, I don't even understand. It was mind-blowing, but it was powerful. And it was a moment where I started to say, okay, maybe I can trust this grace. Maybe I can believe in this. So long story short, uh, after a third time of me breaking up with him and getting back together, yes, we got married (laughs) in October of 2008. We got married. But as you can imagine, all that baggage and all that confusion and all that turmoil, I carried that with me. Now, Danny had come from a good, stable home where he was loved and he was shown grace, and I came from a broken, a broken background. And so we spent the first four years of our marriage with me trying to deal with things. I didn't want to do devotions together because I didn't I didn't um, have a good experience with that in my past. I, I didn't want to do a lot of things, and I pushed him. It was almost like I was testing him to test his real um, strength and his real level. Do you really love me? Are you really gracious? And I was testing him and testing him. And so we ended up going to marriage counseling after about four years of marriage. Um, and, and by the great, thank the Lord, he was willing to say, hey, let's go talk to somebody. So we went and talked to somebody. So we went to marriage counseling, learned so much through that, which is wonderful. And then in the fall of 2012, we came here to the cross, um, and we started to learn about scripture and how to study scripture and how to learn what scripture actually says, apart from doctrine, apart from traditions, what does the Bible say? And what does it reveal about Jesus Christ? And that was powerful. So in, the, in late January 2013, I was at home and I was, I think I'm going long, sorry. I was at home and I was about to meet with my dad and I hadn't talked to him in a while. And I just, I was shaking. I got on my face, on the floor, and I was like, Lord, I want you to take over. I don't want to have bitterness. I don't want to have that. I'm tired of that, but I don't know how to do it by myself. I cannot. I finally got to the point where I said, I can't do it by myself because my little firstborn self wanted to just organize and do all these things myself, and I couldn't do it. And I'm on my face, on the floor, and the Holy Spirit took over me. And for 45 minutes, I could not do anything but laugh. And the joy of the Lord took over me. And I went and I found my husband and I was like, I have joy. I'm not afraid. And I went and I met with my dad that weekend. And for two hours I met with him and I wasn't bitter. And I was able to just sit there and just... We, we, we're not, we're still to this day, we're not reconciled. We, ha- we don't really have a relationship, but I was able to let go of my part and say, no, I'm not going to live with that bitterness anymore. I'm done. And the Holy Spirit ever since then has been teaching me and teaching me and giving me scripture and all that scripture that he laid the foundation with when I was young. And I'm so thankful for, and I'm thankful that my dad instituted in that in our family, all that scripture that he that he put in me when I was young, it's coming up. And he's like, hey, this is what this means. This is what kindness is. This is what grace is. This is what love is. You, I am for you. I love you. And he's teaching me that. And it's been amazing. And one, one verse, I'm sorry, I didn't think I was going to do this. One verse that I want to share that was so important to me when I was in college was Lamentations chapter 3. And it was... 
another example of something that was important to me then, but I didn't even get it until now. Lamentations 3 verse 19 says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and I have hope. says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are, ne- they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thanks. So I'm still learning. I haven't turned my tassel. There's so much that he has to unpack. There's so much in there that needs to get out. But there is hope. And if you've ever had that experience of bitterness or fear or confusion, he's not a God of confusion. He loves you. And his grace, his grace is real. There is grace for you. And I encourage you to reach out and take it. Thank you. So so that's very powerful. You, You know, for me personally, when I think about how our stories matter, I want you to get this. Our stories matter. If you look at your life today, if you look at where you're at, it's not so much about what you've done to accomplish things in life. It's how God has used so many other people to come alongside you at crucial times that encourage you. When Ernie Harwell, the longtime voice of the Detroit Tigers, shared his testimony, and he made that observation that he felt like a turtle on a fence post. And I remember sitting there thinking, this dude is senile, he's lost his mind. And he said, has any of you ever seen a turtle on a fence post? And nobody raised their hand. And he said, if you do, you'll realize it didn't get there by itself. Somebody picked it up and placed it there. And when you hear your story, other people and the Holy Spirit and Christ working in you have have picked you up and put you on this fence post. And you go, how did I get there? How did I get to where I am today? And I think about that in my own journey. So every person in this room, your story matters. Your story has redemptive value. I want to share one of those stories with you today out of Scripture. He's kind of an unknown character, if you will. He doesn't scream with his life story like David or the Apostle Paul or the beloved John. He's kind of one of those hidden stories that very few people have spent time kind of paying attention to. Second Samuel chapter four, verse four, Saul's son, Jonathan had a son by the name of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. You can go back and read the narrative. They were in battle against the Philistines. Saul and David are both killed or Saul and Jonathan are both killed in that battle. And when news of the battle reached the capital, the child's nurse grabbed him, took off running with him, but she fell and dropped him as she was running, and he became crippled. Mephibosheth. Second Samuel chapter 9, years later, King David asked, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them in any way I can. Ziba, one of the servants of Saul, who's now under David's leadership, said, yeah, there's, there's one still alive, but he's crippled. Where is the son? 
He's like he's over in Lodabar. So David sent for him when he came. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. He came to David and he bowed down in great fear. And he said, I'm your servant. David said, don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind to you because of a vow that I made to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you may live here in the palace with me forever. Mephibosheth fell to the ground and said before the king, should the king show such kindness to such a dead dog like me, to a worthless life, an unproductive life, a life that really can't do anything? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, again and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for his family. But Mephibosheth, will live here at the palace with me. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate with David as though he was one of David's sons. Phenomenal story on radical grace. One of the most mind-blowing stories you will find to me in the scripture, specifically the Old Testament. Now, the name Mephibosheth, it would be wise to know this, means to scatter shame or to be filled with shame or it means to have a broken image. Mephibosheth, when people called his name, no man asked old man, your name is your destiny. When they said Mephibosheth, they knew his name meant shameful one, to scatter shame, to have this broken image. Now, if you do some observation on his life, there's a few things we know. Yeah, he was the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, but A few other things we know about Mephibosheth was his own name. We know that he was dropped. We know that he was crippled, and we know he lived in Lodabar. Think about it. We know his name. We know he was dropped. We know he was crippled. We know where he was living. He was living in Lodabar. What does Lodabar mean? Lodabar, when you study that city, It was a place of no word, which meant the word of the Lord was not being proclaimed there. It was a place of no pasture or resources, meaning there was very little to eat. And the little term, Lodabar, means a place of ruins. So here he is from the lineage of Saul, and he's living in a place of ruins with nothing. Sounds a lot like us, does it not? Our name, when you start to think of who I am and who you are and Even listening to the story of my sisters today, we were made in the image of God, but our image has been shattered because of sin. And because of sin, now dwelling inside of each and every one of us, it being shattered image has led us to live a life of of shame. All of us have dealt with shame before, have dealt with fear before, have dealt with the ramifications of the fall before. Our image has been shattered. We're not who God made us to be because of the fall. I started thinking about he, he was dropped. And I'm like, man, so have we been dropped. We've been dropped by people that we trusted. We've been dropped by parents. We've been dropped by spouses. We've been dropped by coworkers. We've been dropped by employers. We've been dropped by coaches. And every one of us that walk in here today, we've been dropped And as a result of being dropped, we're crippled. It's crippled our 
perspective. It's crippled our view of life. It's crippled us in such a way that because of betrayal and rejection, we're crippled and none of us have the ability to walk in a healthy way the way God intended for us to walk. And every person I look at in this room, if the truth be known, we're all born in Lodabar. We were born in a place of ruins, a place of no word, a place of no resources. And we, we were trying to figure it out apart from God. I was studying the life of Mephibosheth, and I'm like, there's a little bit of a Mephibosheth in all of us. There, there's this shattered image. There's this shame. There's this rejection. There's this... I've been done dirty, all, all of us. But it's, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. When you study more, it's like this dude was born into royalty. King Saul, 1 Samuel 8, was the first king anointed by God to lead God's people Israel. He was born with this ordained blessing in his lineage. Uh, well, we're going to bless y'all. I can't wait to get into the life of Uzziah. Uh, next week as I study him because it says when Uzziah became powerful he also became prideful and it led to his downfall same thing happened with Saul he became powerful he was king and he negotiates with the Lord and he doesn't do what God asked him to do and all of a sudden God's anointing and hand and blessing is taken off his life Jonathan is born we study him and we go pretty cool but God says I'm going to bless you and he comes from a, a, a family that's popular, a family that's known, a family that's applauded by people in the church or by people in the congregation. They're like, oh, oh we know that family. And then all of a sudden, they're killed in battle. All of a sudden, he's like, I'm crippled. My life means nothing in that day. I mean, you're as good as a dog. And he's living in Lodabar. As you start to look at his life, he didn't know the king. He didn't know the new king. He didn't know the heart of the new king. He had made some assumptions about this new king that were inconsistent with who the new king was. Words like grace or mercy and love, it's like, I heard those words, but I don't know what they really mean based on what he had seen demonstrated in his own life. And so he comes in and he's like, I'm afraid of the king. If the king asks for me, the king's going to kill me because our entire family needs to be wiped out. He didn't know the king. And I think about so many people, even hanging out with my buddy Chris over the weekend. And Chris made the observation as we were cruising on Lake Oconee yesterday on the boat. He said, you know, I think uh, in the last four years since coming to the cross, he said, I think if I've learned anything, I've learned that I'm righteous in Christ that God loves me unconditionally. I'm chased by his grace every day. I've been in churches. I, I, I've been in the Baptist church. I've been in the church of God stuff. But he said, I think if I've learned anything, God really loves me and God's proud of me. Yeah. Because your view of the king and your view of God and your concept of God is going to drive everything you do in life. It's going to drive the way you do marriage, and it's going to drive the way you do parenting, and it's going to drive the way you pastor, and it's going to drive the way you lead and shepherd and mentor other people. How you view the king. Who's the new king? Jesus is the new king. Who is he, and what's he about, and what does he bring to each of our lives, and why did he come? So when you read the scripture, you have to pose the question, why did David want to see him? 
David said, I want to see you because I made a vow. Vow means an irrevocable promise. Your word means everything. He had made an irrevocable promise with Jonathan. You see it in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan made a covenant with David. They affirmed their vow of friendship. And they said, treat my family with faithful love. Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. They made a vow. I was telling Chris this as we drove across the lake. I said, you know what encourages my heart so much? When you're in covenant and when you're in friendship and when you, you, you stay together, I said, if anything happened to me and my wife, Barb, and we had hung out with Benji and Tanya, my friends, I said, they would take care of my kids. They would bless my kids. And you would take care of my kids. You would make sure that my boys had masculine influence. Because we live here at the cross in covenant with each other. And it thrills my heart to know if something goes wrong, I got you. Josh, I got you. We love you. We'll take care of our people. And that's who we are. And that's who David was. I made a vow with Jonathan. Jonathan's my boy. What a friendship. What a bond. What did he want to do? He wanted to bless him. He wanted to love him. He wanted to encourage him. I was sitting there reading going, Wow. Mephibosheth, broken image and filled with shame. He was called by the king. He was found by the king. He was rescued and honored and graced by the king. And I'm reading this story and tears are filling my eyes. I'm like, I'm Mephibosheth. I get you. Your story matters. I know your story matters. I know that king. I know that king. David said, bring me Mephibosheth. Bring me broken image. Bring me the one filled with shame. I'm going to make you and take you into my house, and I'm going to make you as one of my sons. I want you to live here in my palace forever. I'm going to take care of you. I'll meet all your needs. You'll sit at my table every night. You and I will fellowship. You're going to be my son. We're adopted into the family of God. We're made sons and daughters of the king. And so when God looks at you today, God is crazy about you, and God loves you, and God wants to grace you because you're Mephibosheth, and that's the character of God. I mean, we sing it, but it means more to you day after day after day as you wallow into his grace where you can say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I sit there and I go, what amazing grace. And if you personalize it, you would have to say, me. Tim Cash, Mephibosheth, created by the king, broken, lost, confused. But because of the grace of God, I was made a part of his family. I was called by the king, found by the king, rescued by the king, honored by the king, and graced by the king. I will live in the house of the Lord forever. 
I am taken care of. My God will supply everything I need now. I'll need in the future. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. I invited to fellowship with this king every day. I can open up the word. I can pray. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. And when God looks at me, he goes, this is my boy. I'm his boy. I don't have to perform. If, if, Saul, if Saul would have known what the heart of a true king would have looked like, I believe he would have repented and responded properly. Saul didn't get it. But David got it. And if you ever get a right view of God, you don't want to raise hell, party, and live a life of adultery, fornication, drug. You don't, you don't want to because the king is crazy about you. The king wants to free you and the king wants to lead you. God comes to all of us when we're crippled and disabled. And God goes, you, you, you don't have enough to do it on your own. You, you can't make life work. You're about to meet with your dad, and there, there's a lot of jacked up stuff in this relationship, and you don't know what to say, and you don't know how to conduct yourself. And before the Lord, he goes, let me carry you. Let me carry you. Let me give you my joy to replace your sadness. Let, let, let me give you peace to replace the bitterness. I've experienced that. And all you have to do is say, I receive your grace. The gospel says, it is finished. I've done everything required for you to be in harmonious relationship with me. It's done. And man, I'm telling you, when I realized I didn't have to try, I could trust. And I look at you this morning and I can tell each and every person here, whether you're, you're eight years old or whether you're 88 years old, God loves you. Your story matters. He didn't make junk. You're not here by accident. Well, I wasn't a planned pregnancy. Hey, 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 you were by the king. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Every fiber and cell and tissue and tendon in your body, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you. And God has been chasing you. And God wants you to have a proper understanding of how the great king sees you 24-7. That's the reason when I read that months ago in a book, and a guy said the next Billy Graham may be in a tavern getting hammered right now. And I'm like, that's the truth. Because if he meets the relentless tenderness of the king and he gets rescued and assassinated by radical grace, God can turn that life upside down and three or five years later, this dude might be the next Billy Graham. Why? Because Billy got saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with him. God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast about it. For we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You want to do something fun? Take that text. I did this week. Look at the powerful I am statements. Verse 4. I am covered with love and mercy. Agape, unconditional love has been dumped on me. Mercy means the kindness and compassion of God extended to those living in misery. I said, man, I am covered with his love and his mercy. Verse 5, I am spiritually alive. The earlier part of Ephesians 2 said I was born into the world spiritually dead. But because of the kindness and the grace of the Lord that led to repentance. I'm like, I'm spiritually alive. I'm fully alive, body, soul, and spirit. Who are you, Tim? I am established and secure in Christ Jesus. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Where do you live? I live in heaven. That's my residence. I'm just hanging right now until the king calls me home. I've got a mansion on the other side. That's where I'm going. That's who I belong to. So let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Jesus said, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms and mansions and dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place so that where I am, there you can be also. Because that's where we're seated positionally. We're seated conditionally here. But that's who we are. Verse 7 says, we're walking billboards of his grace and mercy every day. Do you realize that when you walk out into the world, when you leave these doors here uh, just in a few minutes, when you walk out into the world, do you realize that you're God's billboard of hope and mercy and grace and love and salvation to the world? You're the light of the world. You're salt of the earth. So you are. Verse 8 says, I'm an honored child. I'm saved by his amazing grace. So I am. Who are you, Tim? I'm an honored child. My parents never were able to put that sticker on the back of the car. My child's an honor student. Because I was in the third of the class that made the upper two-thirds possible. But when I read Ephesians 2, he said, you are an honor student, my son. That's who you are. Any person that's been radically redeemed by God's amazing grace, that would be a great sticker for us to have. I am an honor student. In God's eyes. It might not be GPA or ACT or SAT. It's the blood of Jesus. You're an honor student. I'm like, yes, I finally made it. I didn't want a curve. I needed a cross to get me right. Come on. Verse 10. I am his workmanship. That word there means a one-of-a-kind piece of art. That's who you are. You're not mass-produced. You're a masterpiece. You're a one-of-a-kind piece of art. That's who you are. Can I tell you something? Grace defines you. And as grace, the grace of God takes root in your soul, the earthly labels will fade. Me and my buddy Kenny were talking about just labels. Because we live in a society that loves to label people. And Mephibosheth had been labeled. Oh, you're, you're, you're crippled. You can't walk. I sit there and listen to you two girls and I'm like, your ability to articulate statements, both of you, is mind-blowing. You're both like so 
powerful as far as communication. What's that word? So anyway, it, it, it's powerful to listen to these girls. Krista gave me a new word this week. She goes, oh, I was thinking about this word this week. I never even heard of that word. Perspicacity. That's the word. I even said it right. I learned that word. The ability to take something complicated and kind of clarify it and break it down. She goes, you have perspicacity. I'm like, perspa means sweat and Cassidy has got the word city in it. So you're saying I sweat a lot in the city. I don't know what that word means. And I sent her a word because I was like, that was impressive. Is there a word for impressive that I've never heard of? I sent it back to her. She goes, Barb must have helped you with that word. They didn't give me credit. But society labels us at times. I want you to get this. You're stupid. You're unproductive. You're lazy. You're fat. You're a druggie. You're a whore. You're a drunk. You're pathetic. Society and the world tries to label you. You're not who the world says you are. You are who God says you are. And the more you allow grace to take root in your heart, can I tell you something? Criticism will dissipate when grace starts to be appreciated and incorporated into your life. I can get up in the morning and go, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who the world says that I am. I'm not the old label. Let me tell you what my king says about me. So grace appreciated and incorporated changes everything. It did for Mephibosheth, and it does for us as well. Charles Swindoll, I love Charles Swindoll. I've listened to Swindoll ever since I got saved. And he's got books he's written on the life of David and on the life of Paul and many others. But Swindoll said it this way. He said, gold and bronze fixtures gleam from the walls of the king's castle. Lofty wooden ceilings crown each spacious room. David and his children have gathered for an evening meal. Absalom, all tanned and handsome, he's there. David's beautiful daughter, Tamar, walks into the room. The call to dinner is given, and the king scans the room to see if all are present. And he notices that one is absent. The sound coming down the hall echoes into the chamber. Clump and scrape and clump and scrape. And finally he appears at the door and slowly shuffles to his seat. It's the lame Mephibosheth. Seated in grace at the king's table. One day, I'll breathe my last. And it might be clump, scrape, clump, scrape. But the king is going to say, my boy, I've been looking for you. You shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sit at my table, you Gentile mutt, you dog with no pedigree. I viewed you as royalty. Amen. You're mine. You belong to me. And you will dwell with me forever.
The king has extended his offer to each and every one of us. All you have to do is to say, Lord, I receive your grace. I repent. I come to you as Mephibosheth. Rescue me and change me. I pray that today's word encouraged you. And thanks for joining us uh, on this uh, broadcast today. If we can help you in your walk with Christ in any way, feel free to contact us here at the Cross Loganville. Our email, info at thecrossloganville.org, or you can call us 770-554-3322. God bless you, and I pray that you have just an incredible day.